case is submitted. We'll hear argument next, number 008053-ACO-Swerkowitz-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-Sorima-
uh, was simply that some facts had to be alleged to support the plaintiff's claims that the government, A, had undersold his medicinal tonic, and B, had uh, lost uh, two cases of his medicinal conduct, uh, tonic, to which uh, Judge Clark said, no, the time for ascertaining the facts under the new federal system, then six years old, was through discovery, and if the case was non-meritorious, through summary judgment. But it's enough that this pro se litigant simply said, you deprived me of my goods, you undersold my property. That is the leading case. And indeed, in Conley... Yeah, but that's the leading case. I would think you might say a case from this court were a leading case well, as opposed to one from the Second Circuit. I, I do indeed. I do indeed. And that's why I started with Conley. But it is interesting and I think prophetic that footnote 5 of Conley cites Diagati with approval. Now, in Conley, the court rebuffed unanimously the claim that some specificity had to be embossed upon the complaint. Seventeen years later, in Shoya, again a unanimous court, then through Chief Justice Berger, rebuffed claims by Ohio that the National Guard and the governor of Ohio, who were defendants, were sued on a 1983 damage claim with only the bare allegation that the National Guard had done wrong and was responsible for the deaths of the plaintiffs in that case, rebuffing unanimously the argument that some facts had to be pled, the Court turned aside that holding, in that case of the Sixth Circuit, and indeed said, you do not need to do it in a complaint. Notice pleading, as we pointed out in Conley, is more than sufficient. You will have sufficient time to flush out issues, to learn facts, in discovery. Had that been the end of the trilogy, it would have been enough. But as this Court knows, just um, nine years ago, eight years ago, in 1993, in Leatherman, again confronted with a similar issue in a 1983 municipal liability case, the Court had to decide whether or not some facts were essential to a 1983 failure to train case under Canton. The decision of the Sixth Circuit, which was accepted on review, had said in no uncertain terms, the complaint here alleges no facts, none, to support the failure to train case. In response, the Court, through the Chief Justice, unanimously said no. We meant what we said in Conley. Rule 8A2 is sufficient if a plaintiff provides information that puts a defendant on notice of the claims. That's all that's required. If today we had to revise the rules, there is a process for doing that, and that might result, for 1983 purposes, in a revision to Rule 8A2, such as that 9A2, which now only requires particularity, in cases of fraud and mistake, might have a third entry for particularity purposes, a 1983 per, um, action, for example. Or here, if upon proper review and the process of this Court's committee and its adoption of rules and those by Congress, it was felt that a Title VII case or an age case ought to also require particularity. That would be the time and that would be the place to do it. But I submit that there are two substantial other reasons for reversal here, and they are bedded in the Federal rules and have not changed in six decades. And they emanate from Rule 84. The rule, scarcely utilized, but is important in this case, which simply says the forms, the official forms that are attached to the rules are sufficient for Federal pleading. In particular, Rule or Reform 5 deals with the goods sold and delivered. It's one sentence between June of 1936 and December of 1936. The plaintiff had goods for which the defendant was responsible. Wherefore clause, prayer for relief, that was deemed sufficient. Official Form 9, a three-paragraph complaint alleging negligence. A, de a defendant driving a vehicle on Boylston Street in Boston committed negligence. 
Injuries result. Negligently drove. Negligently drove. Negligently drove. Doesn't deal with what the standard of care was, whether it was breached, whether there, were, whether there was or was not causation. It gave a date. It gave a date, too, didn't it? It did. Okay. If As the, we did here. Yeah. If the uh, judge says, okay, this complaint measures up to Conley against Goodman, but I don't want to allow, allow extensive discovery, fishing expeditions, what can a judge do to curtail the pretrial proceeding? Rule 16 gives the district court um, considerable discretion to isolate issues, to isolate discovery. If, for example, um, a RICS-type defense was raised, which isn't true in this case, on statute of limitations ground, a professor denied tenure. The complaint doesn't mention anything about the date that tenure was denied, but does say the date employment ended. The University of Pennsylvania determines that we know when the tenure decision was made. It's not pled in the complaint. At a Rule 16 conference, it requests the trial court to isolate that issue, allow discovery to be taken on that issue, and allow summary judgment to follow on that issue. If it's granted, the case is over. If it's denied, the case proceeds on full merits. There are numerous arsenal of, of remedies that district courts have to both curtail. Mr. Goodman, may I ask you this question? Is one of the, the things the district judge can do is you refer in page, in paragraph 31 of your complaint to a particular memorandum that your client sent to the other side. And the other side filed an affidavit saying, here's the memorandum. They put the whole memorandum in. <coughs> may the judge review that memorandum and take it into account in um, on, the, on the motion? Excuse me. Not in the context, I think, of this case for two reasons. One, it was an ex-party submission. The affidavit of defense counsel says, I received a request from the district court. Plaintiff was never notified of it. I thought it was odd that it was made of defense counsel. Well, um, so there was did, no — Supposing you did get notice and you didn't challenge the genuineness of the — of that paper, could the judge look at it in deciding the case? Um, I think <coughs> in some instances, yes. But not in, this not in this because it raises all sorts of questions of credibility and inference. Mr. Swerkovitz, for example, referred to a hostile work environment. He worked, he, he indicated. Well, I'm assuming the judge would, would resolve all inferences in favor of the plaintiff. If the, if the judge did that, could the judge look at the affidavit and ruling on the motion to, I mean, look at the paper that's referred to in the complaint and ruling on the sufficiency of the complaint? I think so. I think so. I think it depends, though, on the uh, substance of the document. I'm assuming that authenticity, for example, is not in dispute. I'm assuming that all inferences in the document on a motion to dismiss are going to be accorded to the plaintiff and not uh, to the defendant. Um, Assuming that, and also assuming that the underlying document is essential to the case, then I think under the case law it may be considered by well, the district court. it must be essential if you refer to it in your complaint. Yes, that's why I answered the question, yes. Mr. The Rule 16 conference, can the judge say, uh, I've looked at this pleading, and it, it uh, passes under the federal rule, but I think discovery would be expedited if you made it uh, much, much more complete. Uh, I want you to file an amended complaint uh, setting forth the, the allegations uh, and, and the reasons for your injury in much more detail. Can you do that? I think it is permissible but largely an abuse of discretion if the Court has stated, which was implicit or explicit, Justice Kennedy, in your question, that the complaint satisfies Rule 8A2. If the complaint were deemed so vague and ambiguous to, quote, uh, precisely Rule 12V, a defendant could make that motion to flush out more factual or more information or regarding either liability or damages. But I would say, except in the most egregious case, a sui sponte direction by a district court who has said, it is my view that your complaint satisfies 8A2, would be precisely what Rule 8A2 and the simplified notice pleading requirements were intended to avoid, which was a lot of litigation up front to avoid a, a disposition on the merits. So then the other option for the judge to allow discovery to go forward but on a limited basis and keep control of it that way? Absolutely. 
And, of course, the revisions to the rules, both in terms, for example, of the number of interrogatories, the number of depositions, have gone a considerable way uh, towards that effect in any event. But the District Court has considerable uh, latitude uh, to add to that. Mr. Goodman, uh, I think this case, in a way, puts, uh, you know, puts notice pleading to the test. Uh, in, in, in the uh, form uh, complaint that you referred to uh, involving uh, uh, an automobile accident, uh, you know, ordinarily automobile accidents don't happen unless uh, there's been some negligence on, on the part of one party or the other. But you get hit with a car and, you know, you have reason to suspect there was some negligence. But people are fired, people are not promoted all the time without any necessary uh, implication of, uh, of wrongdoing. And it's just something that seems wrong that, you know, when you're dismissed, you, 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 you can say, I was dismissed because I'm a Hungarian, without having any, any evidence whatever and, and can bring a complaint and then use the courts essentially as an investigatory uh, arm to find out whether you indeed do have any basis for, for complaining. I, I think, um, I don't know, it, it just seems. I think there are two responses to that. First of all, if the complaint is frivolous or brought in bad faith, um, as an officer of the court, the plaintiff's lawyer, him or herself, would be exposed to damages. So there's got to be some sort of good faith at the outset in making that kind of allegation. So the lawyer must know something more than, than the mere fact that I was fired, and I think I was fired because I was a Hungarian. Presumably the lawyer has to ask the client, why do you think you were fired because you were Hungarian? What makes you think that was the reason? I think you're absolutely And if you can tell that to the lawyer, why can't you, why can't you put it in the complaint? Um, the question is whether or not you must put it in the complaint. And for purposes of this Court's precedence, and again, I come back to Connolly and Shoya and Leatherman, the only way that they must be put in the case, with all due respect, is if Rule 8A2 were amended or Rule 9B were amended. Certainly not required to plead the evidence in support of your charge. Exactly. And that was my last point, and I'll end with it. And that is that the decision of the District Court here, in effect, conflated elements of evidence with elements of pleading. McDonnell Douglas versus Green was a recognition of what we all know to be true. Employers do not look you in the eye and say, you're too old, I'm firing you. You're Hungarian. You are black. You are a woman. You are disabled. It doesn't work that way. That's what McDonnell Douglas did. It said we can find an indirect way, circumstantially, to come to the same result. This is what a plaintiff needs do to overcome summary judgment or to prevail at trial. The Second Circuit, unlike every circuit that has considered the issue, namely the D.C., the Third, the Sixth, the Seventh, the Eighth, and the Ninth, made you put the evidence at the outset of the case. And if I might, Justice Scalia, much of that evidence is not known to the plaintiff at the outset. As this Court has held just last term in Reeves, the key to the evidence frequently is in the hands of the defendant. Who replaced Mr. Skorkowitz? Why was he fired instantly on the spot? Who made that decision? You need discovery. For you that. say some of it must be known to the plaintiff. It's just not enough that I'm Hungarian and I'm fired. I just can't come into a lawyer and say, sue this guy because I'm Hungarian and he fired me. I agree with I that. I think he fired me because I'm Hungarian. You have to find something else. And this complaint pleads far more than that. This complaint pleads two years of ongoing, continuous discrimination based on national origin and based on age. Now, I would say that if it said I was fired because I'm Hungarian, because I'm 51, gives the date in April 1997, identifies the individual who fired him, Francois Chevelle, identifies five other people who were fired for cause and got substantial severance benefits, that that satisfies any kind of notice pleading ever set up by this Court. We did more than we had to. For those the reasons... The last was not even necessary. That the last was not Correct. For those reasons, we respectfully request the Court to reverse. Thank very, you. Very well, Mr. Goodman. Uh, Mr. Muneer. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court of Appeals in this case clearly erred in ruling that the pleadings in this case, the complaint, were insufficient. The Court's uh, 
This Court's ruling in Connolly v. Gibson makes clear that notice is what's essential in a complaint. In this case, the complaint set forth a short and plain statement of the claim, and it indicated a request for relief. Nine pages long, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Can you notice that's a short statement? Uh, well, obviously, the, the length of the complaint will vary on the degree of, of complexity of the case. Uh, but I think that simply underscores the fact that this complaint was more than ample in setting forth, forth the necessary elements of a complaint. What's important about the complaint in this case is that it did identify both the adverse action that was involved and also alleged that the adverse action was the product of a prohibited discrimination. That was sufficient to put the, the employer on notice of the, uh, of the basis for the complaint and provided a basis for, for relief if proved at trial. The, uh, the federal rules do not require that a party include additional facts that go beyond this, including what uh, the employer calls here an inference of discrimination. Rule 9 makes clear that uh, elements of conditions of mind, for instance, uh, can be averred generally, and that includes matters such as intent and motive. And the federal rules certainly do not require that the party set forth all the elements of a prima facie case under McDonnell-Douglas versus Green. Uh, as Petitioner's counsel has pointed out that ruling of the Second Circuit basically confuses the requirements for pleading a complaint and the evidentiary burdens that a plaintiff would bear at trial in proving a disparate uh, treatment case in a situation where uh, circumstantial evidence is being used. Well, suppose, suppose that a person uh, simply feels he's been fired and he thinks his work was good. And the employer said it was bad. So he thinks, why, they couldn't have fired me because my work was bad. It's good. What reason could there have been? Well, I sense an anti-Hungarian atmosphere in this office. That's it. All right? So they write that into the complaint right there. Now, you see, I, I did good work. He said it was bad work. He fired me, and I think it's because... I'm a Hungarian. All right? Good faith. He believes it. Now, uh, do automatically get discovery and costs quite a lot of money. You certainly do not automatically get discovery. Well, how could a judge refuse discovery on that, uh, on these? uh, Very simply, the, this, the, the complaint in this situation presents an issue of fact. Was there or was there not discrimination? And the federal rules contemplate that the mechanism for resolving that issue is summary judgment. In, the ca- in this case, the defendant's counsel is free to bring a motion. But we're, but we're talking about discovery. How does, he, how, does he, how does the judge refuse discovery in my case? It, it may be that a complete refusal of discovery is not appropriate. But what's important is that Rule 16, which deals with pretrial conference, coupled with Rule 26, regulating discovery, and Rule 56, uh, dealing with So then what the Second Circuit judgment. is actually saying is since the judge can't refuse discovery in my case, Let's go back and look and see what the cause of action is. And the cause of action is such that my case doesn't really fall within it. I mean, I, 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 see, I, I'm trying to figure out what they're driving at. It must be something like that. Well, I think that the problem the Second, the second Circuit discerned is, as Justice Scalia pointed out, it's very easy to allege discrimination. And, in fact, it can sometimes be very difficult to prove it as well. Uh, the federal rules deal with this situation by, by providing a mechanism, by providing a procedure. The complaint is needed to put the parties on notice. Does the complaint, the, Mr. Minier, um, require you under the federal rules to put in all the elements of a cause of action in order to survive a 12B6 motion? Your Honor, no, it does not. And, in fact, this was one of the aims of the Advisory Committee in 1938 when they revised the rule, to get away from the code practice of requiring that facts of the cause of action all be pleaded. That led itself. That's why the rules religiously avoid the term cause of action. You do not have to plead the elements of a cause of action. That is exactly right. And I think that principle is clearly enough established to be Hornbook law. We cite a selection of the cases that deal with this on page 13 of our brief. May I ask you one question? In paragraph 31 of the complaint, they refer to this memorandum as outlining the plaintiff's grievances and requesting and outlining his grievances. 
Then the memorandum was put into the record by the defendant, and the judge reviewed the memorandum and thought it didn't really uh, show any discrimination. And he said at oral argument, plaintiff's counsel concedes that there is nothing in the memorandum from which an inference of age or national origin discrimination can be made. And if that were true, would that provide any basis for a 12B6 motion? Well, if I can break down this question and, and, and answer it in, in several parts. First of all, we agree that it may well have been an abuse of discretion for the district court to have considered this memorandum rather than converting the motion to summary judgment where questions of fact and uh, rather than having to take all the inferences giving all the inferences to the plaintiff, rather that the facts could be weighed with regard to the meaning of that memorandum. We think that if the memorandum, in fact, provided no basis for this suit whatsoever, and it was the only basis on which the, uh, the plaintiff had premised his claim, then that might, in fact, be fatal to the complaint. But that's not the situation here. And, in fact, there are inferences that can be drawn from that memorandum, such as the reference to a glass ceiling, uh, that could be read favorably to the plaintiff to support his cause of action. You'd have to allow uh, discovery anyway before you could rule on the 12B6, right? Under the circumstances of considering this memorandum, I think it makes it very difficult not to include discovery. And that means that it should be converted to a summary judgment yeah. motion under well, Rule Well, that's 56. the difference, basically, between a 12B6 motion and a motion for a summary judgment, is that uh, the 12B6 is just on the basis of the pleadings. And the summary judgment is presumably you can consider affidavits and uh, depositions that are taken outside the plea. That's exa- exactly right, Your Honor. I spoke. That's exactly what, what I meant, that you couldn't get rid of the case on the basis of summary judgment without allowing discovery. So there's basically no way to prevent uh, uh, being subjected to discovery on the basis of a claim by somebody who just suspects with no reason to suspect that he has been fired because he's Hungarian. I think that's not strictly speaking true in this sense, that the way Rule 56 is structured is that if the defendant makes the motion for summary judgment, the plaintiff is under obligation to come forward with the facts sufficient to indicate there's a tribal issue. If the plaintiff does not have those facts, it can request discovery at that point. Well, what is it that, how would you describe the standard uh, that's binding on the plaintiff and his attorney for filing a complaint. Going back to Justice Breyer's question, you know, I think there could be something wrong here I'd like to discover. Is that enough? No, I don't think it's it enough. It has to be the well-founded think- suspicion. Is there some verbal formulation that floats around uh, I th- the leading world and the legal world that helps her? I think the benchmark for the complaint is whether it provides the employer fair notice of the action. That's no, how the, no, the but complaint. No, what, what, but what is, what is the standard of confidence, uh, that the standard of belief that the, that the plaintiff and the attorney must have before starting the action? I think that's set forth in Rule 11, and that requires a good faith belief. In good the faith belief. Yeah, good faith belief that there are facts to support the action. Now, it may often be the case that Well, you can have a good faith here. belief that is, that is entirely erroneous. I mean, I, I am sure that I was fired because I'm Hungarian. I don't know a single fact, but by God, I really believe that there are some facts. Is that, is that enough? And he conveys that to his lawyer. Well, this is the important role that the lawyer, as an officer of the court, plays in, in, uh, in policing these efforts. The, the lawyer himself must make an investigation. Well, does he have to investigate the state of mind of the plaintiff to determine his bona fides, or does he, is there some objective standard implicit in the good faith? There have to be some objective basis for the good faith belief. Well, I, I'm not sure if we can fine-tune the standard here to that degree. I think the important point is that these facts, these issues, can be promptly tested through summary judgment. And summary judgment is is designed to deal summarily with those cases which are not substantial and are not substantial. There may be a requirement of some level of discovery, but the district court, who is, is, has the tools available to, to structure discovery, can limit discovery to those issues that are in fact uh, provide the Your the client says, you know, I can tell by looking at people whether they're lying or not, and I think the employer lied to me. I, think I just can tell. I'm, I'm, for example, I think for a, for a lawyer, I think that would be an insufficient basis on which to go Mr. forward. Mr. Minier, what is the status in today's trial work? It's a long time ago, but we used to make see a lot of complaints where facts were alleged on information and belief, and therefore they would set them out very particularly, but not not necessarily 
conclusively. I don't see any information and belief allegation in this complaint. Is that approach used today at all? It continues to be used, Your Honor. It Thank is. you. Thank you, Mr. Manier. Ms. Brody, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case presents the question of whether a plaintiff must allege an inference of discrimination in order to state a claim under Title VII and the Age Discrimination in Employment Act. The petitioner here alleged that his employment was terminated on account of his national origin and age. The District Court and the Court of Appeals both found that this allegation was insufficient to sustain a claim. And that petitioner has right said at the outset, because I, I want to get to it. If the complaint itself, without a, a illumination from the memorandum that you put in, was sufficient, would it, would, would he lose because you, you, you create a different uh, atmosphere from the, looking at the memorandum? And it, Your Honor, no. Um, so so memorandum, we can look at the case without looking at the memorandum. We could look at the case without looking at the memorandum because the complaint alleges that the memorandum outlined the petitioner's grievances with the company and requested a severance package. There is nothing from that allegation which suggests that there was any kind of discrimination, and that is sufficient um, in order for the court. 31 is not enough by itself, but there are other allegations in there that, that, that to raise at least raise an inference, I think. There are no other allegations in this complaint that raise an inference. What the petitioner has alleged here is generally that he was Hungarian, that he was a Hungarian, he was of a Hungarian no, heritage. paragraph 37 alleges plaintiff's age and national origin were motivating factors in Sarima's decision to terminate his employment. That's pretty direct. Justice Stevens, that's a conclusion that is not permitted by the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure or by this Court's decisions. Um, including Connolly versus Gibson, which said that in order to provide fair notice, the plaintiff must provide in the complaint a statement of the claim that gives fair notice of what the claim is, as well as the ground well, on which it why, rests. Why isn't that fair notice, Ms. Brody? He claims the employer discriminated against him because of his nationality and because of his age. Yes, he does, Your Honor, but that's a con- Mr. Chief Justice, but that's a conclusion, well, and that is not sufficient under do, the federal rule. What do you mean rule. by saying it's a conclusion? It's a conclusion that does not set forth what Rule 8 requires. And Rule 8 says that you have to indicate what the grounds on which the claim is based. Brody, why is it any more or less of a conclusion any different from negligently drove? Form 9 says that's enough. Just say Negligent, t- tell the time and place and say, defendant negligently drove. You don't have to say whether he was speeding or went out of his uh, line or anything like that. You just say negligent. Isn't that a conclusion, ne- that he drove in a manner that was negligent? What facts flush that out? Your Honor, if you look at that complaint, that Form 9 complaint, which alleges negligence. It sets forth all the elements of the claim. It alleges a duty. The defendant was driving on a highway and had an obligation to do so with care. It alleges a breach of that duty, which is that he drove. Don't see, at it, what you added, maybe, maybe so, but the, the form doesn't say that. It Those, just gives the place, and it says negligently drove. Those are reasonable inferences that can be drawn from a very simple negligence action. Um, well, surely the same inferences could be drawn here, couldn't they? It seems to me this is more precise, these allegations, than the allegation Justice Ginsburg just described about the simple word negligently. Mr. Chief Justice, I don't believe that that's the case, because in a negligence action, when an individual drives a car into another individual, it can be inferred that negligence was involved in that. In an employment situation — You don't have to infer it. It says it. It does say it, Your Honor. But in an employment situation, when an individual is terminated, individuals are terminated every day. Yeah, but here, here he alleged that he was terminated because of his nationality and because of his age. There is nothing that connects his nationality and his age with the termination of his employment. Well, he's, but he says that it was terminated for that reason. I think if you want to have him spell it out in more detail, 
You're asking that, that he plead evidence, which I don't think is required. Mr. Chief Justice, we are not asking that a plaintiff plead evidence. We agree that that is not appropriate at the pleading stage, and a complaint does not have to contain any ev- evidence. All that a complaint has to contain are allegations based on the plaintiff's good faith belief that he was terminated because the circumstances indicated that there was discrimination. All that the plaintiff has to allege is some inference of discrimination, and that inference is not the employer's reason for the termination. There are surrounding circumstances that occur when an employee is terminated. It does not occur in a vacuum. And this Court has identified various circumstances under which the inference arises. It arises when one employee is treated differently than another employee because of their protected class. It arises when um, an employee — I thought there was a statement here that other people who had been — were not let go, people for whom there was cause. Wasn't there something to that effect? Justice Ginsburg, there is nothing in connection with the termination of employment that indicates that the petitioner was treated differently from other employees. There were allegations that were made relating to an act that occurred two years later uh, — excuse me, two years earlier in 1995 when the petitioner claims that he was demoted. And he makes various allegations about other individuals who are of different nationalities, different citizenships, and different ages. But he does not connect any of those allegations to his situation, which is being a United States citizen of Hungarian heritage. The problem is that those prior allegations relating to an act which occurred prior to his termination and which are time-barred do not have any reference. But he can still use them to show that was the mindset of the employer. It seems to me that you are asking to have facts alleged in this complaint, which, like it or not, the Federal rules don't require. Justice Ginsburg, I respectfully disagree. We were not asking the petitioner to allege facts. We are only asking him to make good-faith allegations which would give rise to some inference of discrimination. Sorry, then I'm confused because I, you don't, an inference isn't the kind of thing that you allege. An inference is the kind of thing that you make. So you must be saying he has to allege facts that would give rise to an inference. Or if you're, are you saying that? That, facts, factual allegations are that what would, you have to, he has to allege certain facts that would give rise to an inference. That right. is correct. What he did allege was he alleged, as a matter of fact, over two years, people who he alleges were factually less qualified and were either younger or not Hungarian, obtained all kinds of advantages that he did not. And then he was fired because of his grievances. And a fair reading is that is both a factual allegation and grievance refers to what he called, said earlier in the complaint. So why, why don't those facts give rise to an inference that his, of what he said was the conclusion? Those allegations import into this case a concept which has never been asserted, and that is this continuing violation theory. The petitioner, there are two separate acts here. There is a demotion and there is a termination. And the petitioner is trying to link them by making the conclusory allegation that there was ongoing discrimination during this two-year period. But this Court has already held in Ricks that a conclusory allegation like that cannot link two separate acts. What we need to do is look at the circumstances at the time of the termination which of case, employment. Which case are you mentioning now? Ricks versus Delaware State College. Was that a 12B6 case? That was a 12B6 case, Your Honor. And the complaint was held insufficient? The complaint was held insufficient, and this Court refused. Well, it was held to be time-barred because the relevant time was the, when he lost his seniority rather than when he was terminated. And here you're arguing that the only evidence of discrimination is that during two or three years before, they treated the French employees better than the Hungarian employees, and it's unreasonable to infer from that that the discharge was similarly motivated. That is and correct. they say it was, and so there's an issue of fact. That is, but it's not a matter of unreasonableness. It's a matter of there's one act, which is time-barred, and there's a second act. And you cannot link them 
especially in this particular case where the allegations relating to the so-called demotion are totally directed to the demotion and don't carry over into the termination of an employment. But if even one of them was a good claim, it shouldn't have been dismissed. Are you saying that neither the demotion or the termination is sufficiently pleaded? The demotion claim cannot be considered because it's time barred. The petitioner did not file an EEOC charge within 300 days of that act. So that is something that is an unfortunate event in history, as has been stated by the Court in Ricks. Um, and it cannot be used to bolster a claim that occurred or that might have arisen two years later. The fact that an employer, and we don't concede this, may have taken an act that was discriminated with discriminatory two years prior to the act that is the subject matter of the complaint doesn't mean that the second act is also discriminatory. And they cannot be combined and put together. Why not? I mean, it doesn't mean, of course, that it is, but it is evidence that it is. Your Honor, in certain situations, such as a, a harassment case where there is, are continuing acts of discrimination that occur, that might be appropriate. But in a case like this, where separate and discrete acts are being alleged, and the first act was completed in 1995. Nothing more happened after that. There is no reasonable basis for linking these two acts together and basing the termination on the demotion allegations. In fact, to do so would really circumvent the statute of limitations um, because it, it would permit a plaintiff to base a present claim on a time-barred claim. And well, that does, does he nowhere allege that his, dismiss, that his uh, firing was because he was Hungarian or because he was uh, because of his age? He makes the conclusory allegation that I was terminated because of my national origin and age. But that does not — that alone is not sufficient to sustain a, cl- a claim. And that is what this Court has stated in Connolly, in which it emphasized that a plaintiff had to set forth the grounds on which the claim rests, I believe that this Court also has endorsed that view in the other 12B6 cases that it has considered, such as Ricks, such as Sutton, where Justice O'Connor went through and analyzed the statutory elements of the claim to determine whether or not the plaintiff had met them. What was, what was lacking in Conley? <clears throat> what, what, what was lacking? There was nothing lacking in the complaint in Conley. In fact, if you look at it, it alleges all the elements of the claim, and it does so in a rather specific basis. It states in Conley that there were 45 positions that were purportedly abolished that were held by African Americans. The complaint then goes on to allege that Caucasians were hired to fill those 45 positions. It then goes on to allege that the union did not represent the plaintiffs in that case and did not try to protect their jobs. And then it says there's a violation of the statute. What the defendant was trying to do in Connolly was to get specific and particular information about what provisions of the collective bargaining agreement were violated and other specific information which is not required. So that if you look at all of the complaints that have been considered by this Court and even by the circuit courts, you see that each of those complaints are sufficient on their face and they contain more than enough allegations to state the elements. But you don't, unfortunately, you you don't have any in which we find a complaint insufficient because it does not contain that detail. I mean, that's that's what you need. I mean, you you might well say all these cases in in which we've we've uh, uh, we've approved going forward with the litigation uh, stated a lot more. But what you need is a case where we approved uh, granting the 12B6 motion because there was not enough detail. I th- that's hard to find. I think the case that we have, the best case that we have to refer to is the Sutton case, where the Court looked at each of the allegations of the complaint to determine whether or not the plaintiff was disabled and refused to accept the conclusory allegation that the plaintiff made. That she was it wasn't disabled. because the uh, allegations weren't sufficiently detailed. It was because accepting the truth of all the details set forth in the complaint, it didn't state what the Court regarded as a violation of the statute. That's I mean, correct. That would be like saying in this case, well, even if he were his age and national origin were motivating factors in the decision, that doesn't violate the statute. You have to do something more. And I, I suppose maybe you could argue that, that, that motivation isn't enough. It's got to be the sole cause or something like that. 
Your Honor, there, there has plenty to be. It, it isn't a, it, a Sutton case was not an absence of detail in the, in the complaint. And, Your Honor, this is not a case about the absence of detail or specificity. This is a case about allegations being made, giving rise to some sort of inference, some sort of suggestion, some hint of discrimination, and there is nothing here. That sounds like evidence again. There is notice that the complaint is that I was fired because of my age and my national origin. Now, it's this case comes to us from the Second Circuit, and that's why I mentioned Diwadi against Durning, because even if it doesn't come from this Court, I assumed that what Judge Clark wrote way back then is still law of the circuit for the Second Circuit, which is why I find it very puzzling that this Court reached the result it did. Your Honor, if you look at the Diwadi complaint, you will see that all the elements of the claim are alleged in that complaint. What do you mean by elements? I thought it was indeed Hornbook law that you are not required under the Federal rules to plead the elements that constitute a, quote, cause of action. That is correct, Your Honor, but there has to be something in the complaint that goes to the heart of the claim. And in a discrimination case, the heart of the claim is the discrimination. In a breach of contract case, the heart of the claim is the breach. And if you identify the contract, you identify the breach, you identify the injury, you have satisfied the elements or the essence of that claim. And that is required in a discrimination case. And what he did was not equivalent to defendant O's plaintiff X dollars for goods sold and delivered on a certain date. No, Your Honor. No, Your Honor. He has not made the showing that Rule 8 requires. And there's a reason that the word showing is used in Rule 8. It doesn't say all you have to do is identify the claim. This is a Title VII claim. And it doesn't say that then you can follow that by conclusion, I was discharged because of my national origin. There's a lot more than that in this complaint. It does run on for several pages, doesn't it? It goes on for several pages, but the facts do not support the conclusion. That is, the factual allegations. And there are factual allegations in this complaint. And interesting, Petitioner doesn't claim that he doesn't have to allege that he was a member of a protected class. He doesn't claim that he doesn't have to allege that he was qualified. And he doesn't claim that he did not have to allege that there was an adverse employment action. All he claims is that he doesn't have to set forth any allegations that would give rise to this inference of discrimination. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the inference. It just has to be. Those elements are not necessary for to win, are they? They're necessary to establish a prima facie case that would insulate you against a preliminary dismissal. But you can win a case without establishing the prima facie elements. I mean, suppose I can't show that I'm a member of a protected class, and I can't show that other people were fired. But what happened in this case is that this employer just had a thing against white male Anglo-Saxons, clearly not a protected class. But it was because, and I have evidence that will prove that, that I was fired because I was a white male Anglo-Saxon, and this employer just hated white male Anglo-Saxons. That's a valid complaint, isn't it? Your Honor, you would have to look at the four corners of the complaint and determine whether there are any other allegations in it. No, but you're arguing this case as though it is an essential, it is essential to win a Title VII claim that you establish a prima facie case. And I don't think it is. Your Honor, I believe under McDonnell-Douglas, if you're going to base your claim on an inferential case, that you do need to allege and prove the element of the prima facie case. Unless you have other manners of establishing liability. That is correct. And those are questions of fact, which need not be, which need not be pleaded. Those are the evidentiary proof. Your Honor, the word evidence has been used frequently, and neither the court of appeals, the district court, or the respondent here is suggesting that a petitioner or a plaintiff must allege facts or set forth evidence. All he has to do is have a good faith basis for making allegations. 
And if you look at all the discrimination cases that have come before this case, going back to McDonnell Douglas, there has always been an allegation of some inference of discrimination. And that I've never seen an allegation of an inference. I've only seen an allegation of facts. And, and I bring this up again because now you say he doesn't have to allege facts. But I thought your whole case was he did have to allege facts. The case is that he has to make factual allegations. Okay. Then you're saying he has to allege facts. Yes, Your Honor. And, and so, we, we, well, all right, we, we, I don't want to go in circles, but I want to be sure that you agree about that. You're talking about a failure to allege certain facts. Yes. Allegations are based on facts. And I think that you have to make allegations which have some factual basis in order to go forward with a case. Well, in addition to what he said, he also said that everybody else, and he names about ten people uh, who were dismissed, were dismissed for cause and given severance benefits. But he was dismissed without cause and wasn't given severance benefits. Well, that, that seems directly related to the dismissal. And moreover, reading it in light of what he said before, uh, he uh, uh, alleges as a conclusion that this shows I was dismissed without severance because of my nationality uh, or because of my age. Why aren't those facts that give rise to an inference, at least as much as I was in an accident and therefore he's negligent. Because those allegations alone are insufficient in that he does not allege the national origin of any of those individuals. Some of them could be Hungarian. He doesn't state. He doesn't allege the age of those individuals who were terminated and allegedly received severance packages. For all we know, they could be over 50. There's nothing that indicates that those people received the treatment that they did because of their national origin. But is, right. is that really essential to pleading a claim, a claim for relief here? I mean, supposing he had left out what happened to these six people and simply said that he was dismissed from his employment because he was Hungarian and because of, because of his age. Uh, what, what more than what I've just said ought he to have alleged to have complied with a bare minimum? What he ought to have alleged is the kind of allegation that is alleged in McDonnell Douglas, that is alleged in McDonnell versus Santa Fe, that is alleged in Ricks. All these allegations in all these cases but, raise. But McDonnell Douglas, I don't think, was ever meant to be a, a pleading requirement. It, it was a way, as Justice Scalia said, to, to survive summary judgment and, and get to the jury. McDonnell Douglas can be used as a pleading requirement, and it is sensible for it to be so used, well, because at the pleading stage... I think many of us may, may agree with you that it would be sensible for it to be so used, but that the, it, the rules just don't, don't provide for it. McDonnell Douglas reflects Title VII. It incorporates the provisions of Title VII. And in order to eventually prove a Title VII case, which is an inferential case, you're going to have to plead the elements. The huge difference between <coughs> pleading a case and proving a case, and pleading a case does not require you to put forward your evidence. You could ask pinpointed questions. You say, what was wrong with this is they didn't identify the national origin, whatever. You send a set of interrogatories, get the answers to those questions, and if they, if they show that everybody else is Hungarian, he's out of court. You could have asked for a more definite statement, I suppose, if you said this was so vague I can't answer it. Your Honor, the idea that a complaint need only allege a conclusion in order to proceed with discovery and summary judgment and trial. Does count Rule 11? This person was represented before the district court, right? In fact, correct. the same counsel. And there was a, there was a representation to the court made by the attorney under Rule 11 that says there's a good basis in law and fact for this charge. Does that count for nothing? That does count for something. But the problem, which we're addressing here, is that there are not sufficient allegations in this complaint which indicate that discrimination had anything to do with And the best case you have for that is the statute of limitations case, which is a, an affirmative defense that if, if, if the time is up, that's it. There's nothing. You could have all the beautiful facts in the world. 
so that statute of limitations, you can answer the complaint with that and get summary judgment on the spot, or even arguably 12b-6. But you have given that statute of limitations as the only pleading case. The others were all cases that plaintiffs won, and you're searching for language that you can pull out of them to say, ah, but in other circumstances, they would have lost. I think that if you look at McDonald versus Santa Fe Trail, you will see that the Court there utilized McDonald Douglas on a 12b-6 motion, and it examined the allegations in the complaint there to determine whether or not the plaintiff had alleged facts which could give rise to an inference of discrimination. That was one of the issues in McDonald Douglas. And that is a case where this Court applied McDonald Douglas and required an inference of discrimination. What case are you, are you referring to? That is the case McDonald versus Santa Fe Trail Transportation. That was a dismissal under 12b-6? That was dismissal under 12b-6. The other case that I would refer the Court to is Baldwin County Welcome Center versus Brown, which is a case where this Court held that a right-to-sue letter issued by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission did not constitute a complaint because it did not comply with Rule 8 notice and did not set forth the factual basis for a claim. A right-to-sue letter has all the information that the plaintiff put in his complaint. You have to file a paper that's called a complaint, and a right-to-sue letter is not that. You can't go into court and say, here's a nice letter, court, and I'd like you to proceed. You have to have a complaint. The rules say that. The right-to-sue letter isn't a complaint, so I don't think that takes you very far. Well, I don't believe that you have to have a document that's entitled complaint in order to file it as a complaint with a court. Uh, this court did not hold that the right-to-sue letter was not appropriate as a complaint because of its title. Uh, this court held that there were no factual allegations contained in that complaint for which the basis of the, com- of the claim could be stated. I- I'm confused. The right-to-sue letter would have come from the EEOC. That's correct. And the plaintiff in that case took the right-to-sue letter, went to court, and filed it. But that was not the plaintiff's pleading. That was a notice from the EEOC. Well, the plaintiff called that his pleading, and he proceeded on that as his pleading. May I ask you just one question, as having studied the complaint as carefully as you have? Do you interpret the charges that, that your client was discriminating against this person because he was Hungarian or because he was not French? Your Honor, that's an excellent question. I think there has been a, 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 a use of these terms very loosely. I believe that what the petitioner is arguing is the latter point. That is, he was discriminated against because he was not French. And I believe it's because he was not a French citizen. He alleges that these other individuals in the company were French nationals. Um, in his EEOC charge, he makes clear that he, ref- he's, he regards them as French citizens. And, in fact, one of them, one of these French nationals, is actually of Greek heritage. So the discrimination that we're talking about here is really not based on national origin at all. It's based on citizenship. And as this Court knows from Espinoza, that is not covered by Title VII. It isn't a proper basis for a discrimination claim. Uh, the case that you cited, Santa Fe, that was a case that the plaintiff, where the plaintiff prevailed against the 12B6. Yes, Your Honor. That is correct. Well, I thought you gave that to us as an example of where McDonald Douglas had been applied at the pleading stage to dismiss the case on 12B6 grounds. Oh, Your Honor, I may have misspoke on that. But the so court all of your cases, then, are cases in which the plaintiff surmounted the 12B6 hurdle, and there's language in that you, for this mythical case that hasn't yet occurred. Your Honor, I think that Ricks, I think that Evans, and I think that Sutton are all cases where the claims were dismissed, which assist us in this case and indicate the kind of notice that is required. Because even though — If Ricks I ale- allege — if the defendant gave me a dirty look, I'm going to be tossed out on 12b-6, and I could describe all the grimaces and everything else, and it won't do me any good because the law doesn't recognize such a claim. That is correct. That is correct. That's, However, that's in effect what this plaintiff did. 
he wrote this memorandum in which he complained about his treatment by the company. I thought when you there is evidence outside the four corners of the complaint, then you can bring it as a Rule 56 summary judgment motion, not a 12B6 motion. So technically that, if you're supposed to look only to the complaint on a 12B6 motion, that should not have been considered. Your Honor, I think that it is universally recognized that if a document is referred to and relied on in the complaint, it is regarded as being incorporated into the complaint and is proper for the Court to look at it on a 12B6 motion. Thank you, Ms. Brody. Thank you. Mr. Goodman, you have one minute remaining. Just to follow up on Justice Ginsburg's comment about McDonald, on the very point that you raised, the complaint was sustained and not denied. At 427 U.S. 283 footnote 11, the Court held that there was no requirement for particular particularity as defendant had requested and thus sustained the complaint. Second and last, in 1953, the Ninth Circuit recommended to the Advisory Committee that Rule 8.2 be amended to add this phrase at the end, namely, the statement in the complaint shall contain facts constituting a cause of action. In 1955, the Court's Advisory Committee rejected it. It said that it only requires a general statement. Thank Thank you. you, Mr. Goodman. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.